I think this is the seventh week. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Job, and every week we've begun with these words on the screen. The heart of the universe. And now finally, in the book of Job, we come to the heart of the universe. We're going to be told what it is. So if you have a Bible, please turn to it again, this time to Job chapter 28. In the church Bibles, it's page 529, and in the larger print Bibles, 817. If you were here last week, you might remember we looked at chapter 19. So let me just mention what we have moved over in order to get to chapter 28. Chapters 20 to 27 contain the end of Job's argument with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm not sure if we should still call them all friends at the end, but that argument discussion is over. And it began back in chapter 4. And we notice very early on, the three friends really, between them, only have one message. They can only play one tune. All three of them keep on telling Job, Job, people get what they deserve and they deserve what they get. All blessing, the friend said, is a reward for good you've done. And all suffering is punishment for sin that you've done. And since you're suffering, Job, you must be hiding some sin. We're here to tell you, you need to bring it into the open and deal with it and all will be well right away. God will start pouring blessing out on you again. That's their tune and they keep playing their tune like a broken record. But Job will not accept it. And so they keep on repeating it. They repeat it ever more loudly and ever more boldly as those chapters go on. In fact, eventually, in chapter 22, Eliphaz starts making up things that Job must have done wrong. He accuses Job of things that he has no evidence for. And all the while, Job stands his ground. He insists he's not holding on to any sin. He doesn't claim to be sinless, but he knows he has dealt with his sin and he's dealt with it God's way. Job's suffering is undeserved. And he asks his friends for pity. But they have no pity. They won't acknowledge that the world might not work according to their neat system. That's how the argument went. And the obvious question is, why do we need 24 chapters of that? All the way from chapter 4 through to chapter 27. Why didn't God find an editor for this book? Or if he had an editor, why didn't he find a better one? Why not just summarize the argument in a couple of chapters? Well, here are two reasons I think we are given the argument in full. First, it's probably fair to say that deep down, most of us want the world to work the way the friends say it does. The world would make much more sense to us If it worked like a simple system, you get out what you put in. That would make sense, and it would put you and I in control of our lives, wouldn't it? You and I could know suffering would never hit us 
Because we're smart enough and we're good enough to avoid it. Just put in the right things and you'll get out the right things. Deep down, we would like the friends to be right. But they're not. And we need to have that underlined for us over and over. We need to watch and listen and see the friend's neat and tidy theory as it runs into the problem of Job. Because he is not getting out what he put into life. Job shows us that sometimes you reap what you sow in this life. Sometimes, but not always. Life does not make the sense you and I would like it to make. And we certainly don't have the control we would like to have over our lives. Here's a second reason the Bible gives us every episode of Job versus his friends. The whole box set. Gives it to us because it allows us to see Job's journey of faith. It's very painful to listen to at times. But as we listen, we see what true faith looks like and what it sounds like. Job does not march triumphantly through his suffering. In fact, a lot of the time, he doesn't seem to be making any progress at all. He has moments of insight and confidence in God. Like the one we saw last week, I know that my Redeemer lives. Moments of clarity like that. And then he slips backwards. Someone has said, the spiral of grief sometimes twists round and round. Maybe you have experienced that, and that's certainly what we see and hear from Job. But over the course of this book, he does move forward. It's not a straight and steady line of progress, but he is a true worshipper. And his faith does persevere. He is always restless for God. And he will not stop crying out to God. So as you read this book for yourself, take the time to get the full effect of chapters 4 to 27. Let Job's own journey of faith encourage you in your situation. It is possible to walk on with God even when things are dark, even when you have unanswered questions. And this morning, we are given significant help with that, walking on with our unanswered questions. Chapter 28 is one of the most significant chapters in this book. The argument has just ended. The three friends have finally shut up. And we're not going to hear from them again. But before we launch into the next stage of the book, chapter 28 comes to us as a kind of pause for thought. The heading in the NIV Bible calls it an interlude. But this is not just filler. This is not like the halftime advertisements. This chapter confronts us with the heart of the universe. So let's hear it. 
There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says... It is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This is God's word. And this chapter begins with the impressive reach of human discovery. It tells us the human race is capable of amazing things. Mind-blowing things. And that's illustrated for us here with the most impressive technology of Job's time. Mining precious things from the earth. Jewels and various ores. Look again at verse 1. There's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Some of you will have been to the Black Country Museum and you'll have seen and gone down the old mine they have there. 
If you haven't gone, I recommend it. And in one sense, when you go down, it's it's appalling, really, to see the danger those miners were exposed to, the conditions that they worked in. But it's also a marvel to see what humans could do, even before machines were involved in the process, just hands. And here verse 3 says, mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people they dangle and sway. Humans can overcome the darkness underground. They can find what they're looking for. It's desperately dangerous working in isolated places. And we can picture here somebody being lowered down a shaft on a rope, dangling and swaying. So vulnerable. And yet, they succeed. Verse 5 points out that getting food from the ground is relatively easy. Just plant grain and it grows. It's a much tougher job harvesting the treasures that are buried deep under the earth. Certainly no animal can do that. Verse 7, No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. Falcons are known for their fantastic eyesight. But they can't discover what we can. Lions are known for their strength. But they can't tunnel through rock like we can. These verses are a tribute to human ingenuity and ability. And it's a perfectly justified tribute. Think how much further we've come in the thousands of years since this was written. How far we've reached in science and technology. Think how many obstacles humanity has overcome through experiment and calculation and sheer determination. Think about advances in communication. We can talk face to face with someone on the other side of the world in an instant. Megan can chat to her brother sitting in his kitchen in Tennessee. She can see what he's eating for breakfast. Human beings figured out how to do that. Think about advances in medicine. 20 or 25 years ago, the world was terrified by AIDS. But just a week ago, I was listening to the radio... And they had a piece showing how much things have changed in the last years. The HIV virus has been tamed. With one pill a day, people with a virus can live a normal life. And when it comes to exploration, never mind digging underground, we have conquered space. Think how far we've come from 
the Wright brothers and aeroplanes, then to the moon, and now we're poking around Mars. Is there anything we can't discover? Is there any puzzle we can't solve? Well, actually, yes, there is. Verses 12 to 22 confront us with the priceless wisdom that is out of human reach. Verse 12. After all these lists of discoveries and accomplishments, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? In the context of the book of Job, This is a very specific kind of wisdom. The wisdom mentioned here is not what you and I might call wisdom for living. The Bible often gives us that kind of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 14 says, If someone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. There is some helpful wisdom for living. Or Proverbs twenty five seventeen, seldom set food in your neighbor's house, too much of you, and they will hate you. Proverbs is full of that kind of stuff. Practical, day-to-day tips for how to negotiate life and negotiate relationships well. But that is not the kind of wisdom Job 28 verse 12 is talking about. Verse 12 calls it literally the wisdom. And in the context of the book, it means understanding the hidden order of the universe. This is about the answer to the why question. Why is this happening to me? That's what Job wants to discover, isn't it? As he agonizes and as he shouts and as he calls God's justice into question. He wants to know why. Now Job's friends, they claim to understand the order of the universe. They claim to know the answer to the why question. But we've seen over and over, they believe the universe runs like a moral machine. You get out what you put in. But we've also seen that's totally inadequate. It doesn't fit with reality. The order of the universe is hidden from humanity. Our experience of life often just seems like chaos. It makes no sense to us. We can't explain it. I don't often feel like throwing things out of the window, but there's one thing that I regularly come close to throwing out the window. It's not a person. It's not the cat. He'd land on his feet anyway. It's my laptop. My laptop appears most of the time to have a mind of its own. And it's a crazy mind. As far as I can see, it behaves in ways that are disordered and totally unpredictable. Things that have worked a hundred times before suddenly go wrong. And it refuses to do things it has done ever since I got it. Now, of course, when I have calmed down, I realize my laptop is not truly unpredictable. It does have an internal architecture. 
It makes sense. There is an order to the way it works. The problem is I can't see the internal architecture of my computer. I wouldn't understand it if I could see it. I can only see my computer's behavior. And it makes no sense to me. Now, according to the Bible, what is true on a small scale with my laptop is true also of the universe. There is a moral architecture to the universe. Underneath all that apparent randomness of life and existence, there is an order to it. There is sense and there is purpose to all that goes on. The trouble is, we human beings can't see it. And for all our ingenuity and our dogged determination, we cannot discover it. Science and technology can tell us plenty about a lot of different things. But they can tell us next to nothing about the meaning and purpose of existence. They cannot answer the why question. That was illustrated by Douglas Adams in a novel he wrote called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that story, there's a supercomputer called Deep Thought. It was built, we're told, to discover just one thing. The answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything. For 75,000 generations, Deep Thought has been working on the answer to that question. And finally... The day comes when deep thought is ready to give the answer. And the tension is almost unbearable. People have been waiting their whole lives to hear the answer. Humanity has been waiting for thousands of years. The book really builds it up. And finally the moment comes. Deep thought announces the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is 42. What a complete letdown. What a totally useless answer. And the point is, technology cannot discover the hidden order of the universe. Siri can't tell you. Cortana can't tell you. Human beings cannot answer the why question and we can't build anything that will tell us the answer. We can describe the universe very well. But when it comes to the meaning and purpose of it, when it comes to what's behind these experiences you and I go through, why things in our lives happen as they do, we cannot see the order behind it. And the hopelessness of the search is described in verses 12 to 22 of our passage. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold. Nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it. Nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. 
The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Knowledge of the hidden order of the universe is a priceless thing. Nothing can buy that kind of understanding. Economics and commerce cannot get it for us. And no living thing can get to it. It's hidden beyond our ability to find it out. And that, when we grasp it, is a deeply humbling truth. We live in a time when we expect that we can answer every question. We know so much. We expect to understand then why hard things happen to us. Why this? Why now? And why me? Why has this terrible situation landed on my lap? Atheism says, nobody knows. So stop asking the question. There is no hidden order to all this. There is no moral architecture to the universe. We're all just here, we mean nothing, and the stuff that happens to us has no purpose. It just happens. But the Bible gives us a different answer. It's here in verses 23 to 27. They show us the one who knows. Speaking of this wisdom we've been talking about, verse 23 says, God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a pass for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. I mentioned my laptop earlier. The way it works is a mystery to me. I can tell you about some of the stuff on the surface. How to use Word a little bit, how to use PowerPoint a little bit. But I have no idea why the screen goes blue sometimes and why it happens just when I want to print my sermon. It's a mystery to me, but that is not a mystery to the architect who put my computer together. Somewhere there's a designer at Samsung who knows the hidden architecture. It all makes sense to him. My blue screen is no mystery to him. At least, that's true most of the time. It's not a perfect illustration. Humans do sometimes get things wrong. And you've probably seen in the news with Samsung, they don't always understand their products very well. But here we're told, the divine architect of this world, he does know the answer to all of our why questions. He does see the whole picture. If any group of people know about the unpredictability of the weather, 
It's us in the UK, right? And for all of their sophisticated satellites and sensors, even the professional forecasters struggle to make sense of it sometimes. But verse 25 says, God measures the force of the wind. He measures out the rain. And verse 27, He has also looked at and appraised and confirmed and tested wisdom. He knows why we get great summers and why we get rotten summers. And he knows the answer to the deeper questions too. The questions about our pain and suffering and the injustice that we see and the abuse and the abandonment. The divine architect knows the deep hidden architecture of this world. That priceless wisdom belongs to him. Maybe as we hear that, it raises our hopes a little bit that we can know it too. In fact, lots of people read the book of Job with very high hopes. They bring their own why questions to the book And they hope to have them answered as they read it. But already, chapter after chapter have gone by and we haven't got any answers. And I can tell you now, you will not get them by the end of the book either. This book is not here to answer our why questions. It's here to point us to the one who knows the answers. If you and I knew what God knows, we would be God. And that isn't going to happen. We will always have unanswered questions in this life. And so the challenge for us is this. Will we trust the one who does know the answers? That's the final payload of our passage. Verse 27 has told us the wisdom at the heart of the universe belongs to God. It's His wisdom. Then verse 28 says, He said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. It's significant that verse 28 does not mention the wisdom as the earlier parts of the passage did. We were told earlier that wisdom about the order of the universe is not available to us. We can't get to it. We can't know the wisdom. But verse 28 is telling us there is a wisdom available to us. There is a wise path for us to walk on in life. In the midst of our unanswered questions, we can know how to live. We can know how to respond to the things that happen to us. Verse 28 says that the height of human wisdom is trust and obedience to the one who knows all things. It mentions here the fear of the Lord. What is that? It simply means that we acknowledge our dependence on God. It's not about being terrified of him. It's about submitting ourselves to him. 
It's about knowing our place and giving God his rightful place. And that is so hard for us. It's not a hard thing for us to say. It's not hard to sing about God being on the throne, king of the universe. It is very hard to accept what it means for God to be on the throne. It means trusting him even when he doesn't tell us why. How you and I react to this chapter is going to show us whether we truly fear God or not. Because in this chapter, God says, do not seek the hidden wisdom. Seek me. Let go of your why questions and bow before me. True fear of the Lord means being content with the architect. Even if we never understand the architecture. And true fear of the Lord leads us on to obedience. To shun evil means to turn away from sin. Whatever we go through, to live that way is to live wisely. It's to live in the wisest way possible. At the very beginning of the book, we were told this about Job. He feared God and shunned evil. In fact, we were told that three times in the introduction to the book. And here, right in the heart of the book, in the depths of Job's suffering, the message comes, fear God and shun evil. What's the significance of that? Well, it tells us there is no special secret to dealing with suffering in our lives. There's no mysterious insight that will get us through suffering. When all is going well for us and when all is going terribly, the height of human wisdom is always to trust God and obey Him. To fear the Lord and shun evil. The wisdom at the heart of the universe belongs to God. Will you trust him that he is doing all things well? Will you leave your why questions with him? Will you be content to know the architect and leave the architecture to him? Will you get on with trusting him and obeying him? And that begins when we trust the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the architect's gift to us as human beings. And when we commit to trust and obey him, nothing can separate us from God's love. We may never have all our questions answered, but Jesus has already answered the question about God's love for us. When we look at the cross, we can never doubt God's love. That part of the hidden order of the universe has been revealed to us. The call for us is to trust 
the architect who loves us. And our final song helps us and encourages us to do that. So as we sing this, I just ask you, let the words speak to you as you sing them.